so good to be here this morning and to, to worship together and uh, to see, uh, see everyone here. It's, uh, it's always a blessing to be in God's house. For me, it's just, uh, um, you know, you think about, okay, it's, it's wonderful to be in worship, but what it's going to be like to be in worship in heaven as uh, we behold the Lamb and we, uh, uh, we adore Him. And we were talking, Kenny was talking about that this morning, and, and uh, certainly we have no ideas. It says, I have not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. So if we haven't seen it and we haven't heard it, I mean, we, we hear, but we really, the depths and the reality of, of Christ's presence is something that, uh, I don't know, it, you know, we, it's going to take our breath away. But I guess we won't need as much of that. I'm not sure in heaven. I don't, uh, again, I don't know about the oxygen levels there. <laughs> Aren't you glad that God just doesn't, I mean, he doesn't explain a lot of things because if he did, we wouldn't understand them anyway. So, so, let's, uh, but we're uh, looking at the, the book of Titus and we've been talking about um, the section on qualifications for elders and pastors, uh, teaching and, and um, uh, ruling elders. Um, they make a, we make a distinction. Uh, I guess the Bible makes somewhat of a distinction. Although I think when you think about eldership and pastors, they're one among equals. They're not one, a, a pastor is not one above equals. He's one among equals. And I think that's important as we look at what, what, what qualifications are here. And so the reason we're pre teaching through this is that Titus was dealing with some issues with leadership that was affecting the church and that uh, was important to the church's future and its, its growth and godliness. And so, uh, so he, Paul is writing to Titus because he left uh, Crete and he needed, he needed leadership to be put in place. And in order to do that, he says, this is the kind of people that you should put in place. And so it's good for us to know that because this is God's church. It's God's household. And because of that, then God is setting forth, these are the things that he wants done in his church. And so we're going to look at uh, Titus chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 5 through 9, although we're going to focus on the second, uh, second section, um, and uh, we'll, we'll touch base on that, uh, on qualifications. But notice this, beginning with verse 5, here are these words from God's holy and errant word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, and that's the same word, overseer and elder are the same office. It's not two offices. Um, you'll see that in Acts 20. You'll see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. As God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard, or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And you notice he uh, mentions that word sound doctrine, and the word sound is the word healthy. It's like when we talk about being on a healthy diet. You know, he we said, well, we should eat healthy. 
we're usually talking about eating vegetables and fruits and maybe not too much red meat and all that kind of stuff. Well, Paul is talking about sound doctrine. He's talking about healthy doctrine, doctrine that actually promotes godliness, which is in chapter 1, verse, uh, is chapter one, verse 2. Paul says that God has given us the gospel because it produces godliness in our lives. And so that, so that, think of that. So Paul, Paul's saying the only thing that can produce godliness is our understanding of the gospel and Christ dying for our sins, Christ doing the work of salvation for us, that grace of God, when we understand the grace of God, it will produce godliness. And godliness just means this, we just want more of God. <laughs> when, you, when you think about what does it mean to be a Christian, I want, I've heard testimonies this morning in Sunday school. I just want to see Jesus. That's godliness. I mean, isn't it to think about the person who, who died for you, who paid your debt of sin, is the person then that you want to see first when you get to heaven. You want to say, I just want to thank Jesus. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I just want to say thank you, thank you, because apart from that, we would not be here. None of us would be here this morning. And so, Paul, so Paul's writing because what was happening in the church, if you, could look, if you can kind of look, over, look at verses 10 and 11, there were some people in the church that had come in. I don't know if these were, like, I don't know if these were outside evangelists. I don't know who these people were. Uh, he doesn't go into detail. But in verse 10 it says, For there are many who are insubordinate, Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So he's talking about Judaizers, at least. We know that. They must be silenced because they are upsetting a whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then he goes on and says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound and or healthy in the faith. So, so what Paul is writing Titus for is he's basically writing because apparently some people were creeping in and what they were teaching was they were teaching spirituality, but they weren't teaching the gospel. They weren't holding to the gospel, the gospel message. And so Paul is saying, okay, these are the people that you need to have in position to, to offset or to confute that kind of teaching. He says you, want, you need uh, elders and they need to be qualified in three areas. One of the areas we looked at last week, and that's in the area of his domestic life, his marriage, his, his, uh, his children, his family. And it's interesting that, that he would start here, don't you think? Because when we interview a candidate or if somebody were, um, when I came as a pastor, most people are saying, well, where did you go to school? What's your qualifications? You know, what, uh, you know they, they might say, okay, you're married. You have how many kids? Five kids. Well, that's a lot for us to take care of. <laughs> um, uh, then uh, they would, you know, they might ask some questions about what, I th what my views were on certain things. But they may not ask the one question that Paul starts with, and that's the family and the marriage. Pretty important because in reality, what the, the real person is... The real person you see in the home is the person that, in other words, that person is the person that's going to have an influence in the church. And so if he, let's say if he's a controlling, uh, overbearing person in the home, he's probably going to be that in the church. If he is irresponsible and, and checked out at home, probably will be that in the church. So he's just saying there's certain things you need to have 
as you think about a person who's going to be in that position, whether an elder, a ruling elder, or a teaching elder. And so you might say there's this headline that Paul puts above the qualifications. Um, I think of it this way as uh, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, when you see West Virginia, a sign of, about West, welcome to West Virginia, what's above it? Almost heaven. <laughs> West Virginia. You know, we, it's almost like, okay, well, above the qualifications of an elder is this. He must be above reproach. He says that twice here. Notice that in verse uh, 6. If anyone is above reproach, and then not, notice verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So he's saying he must be above reproach. This means that, you know, there can't be somebody that could put, point a finger and say, look, he's bringing shame on the name of Christ. That's the idea. You know, by, in other words, what he says is different than what he's saying, living and he's, and he's doing. Uh, that's the idea, above reproach. Uh, in other words, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't put something... You couldn't see anything in his life that was contradicting what he says he believes as far as his relationship to God. So the overriding headline, I would say, would be above reproach. And so he's saying he needs to be blameless in these three areas in his home life. Now, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. But it does mean that he's humble enough to admit his sin and his need. But secondly, notice his... Character. What kind of characteristics should, uh, should be characteristic of him? And then thirdly, his teaching. So he, he actually, you think it's the teaching's going to be first, his doctrine? No, it's third. <laughs> his character and who he is, you know, in terms of his person, his, um, how he deals with certain things, those are the things he's going to deal with first. And so notice the first one, the elders are to be blameless in their conduct, is that he starts out here in, in verse 6 and he says, Actually, not verse 6, verse 7. For an overseer as God's servant, steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. He's kind of like, why is he starting with all the negatives? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, why is he starting with all the vices? He, he, notice he, he deals with the vices before the virtues. He deals five, he's dealing with five vices. And notice the, the one vice that we don't think of as a vice is pride. In other words, that, that word self-willed is the word pride there. He's a self-willed person is a person who, who basically is, is, it's about them. They're looking for recognition and praise. Um, we would say, uh, for example, um, we probably don't like being around somebody that's boasting all the time, right? About what they do. But that would be a person who maybe is boast, boasting. Uh, or maybe someone who's just to get, accumulate approval or acceptance will look for ways to get, uh, build the reputation. To get praise. To, to get uh, acknowledgement. And notice what the Bible, what does the gospel do when it comes where does praise supposed to go first? We were reminded last week. It's praising God, right? In other words, um, the, the five solas of the Reformation. Remember, one, the first one is, is, is sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's, that really was the foundation of the Reformation when, when, when the church began to be revived again in the 1517 when Luther posted the 95 Thesis to the door uh, of uh, Wittenberg uh, church. 
but, but then there's the other four solas, but one of them is sola dea gloria, which basically means glory to God alone. The gospel brings glory to God because where salvation is totally the work of who? It's the work of God, isn't it? And because of that, then God, so, so what it does is it, it's, it's intended to dismantle my pride. <laughs> in other words, if I'm going to boast, it says boast in the Lord. If I'm going to boast, then I want to, I want to promote his glory, not toast myself, you know, to say toast to my own reputation or my, uh, my person. And Jesus even said that in, uh, you remember in the, when he was talking to disciples, I think it was Mark chapter 5, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what he was talking about there was he's saying, look, the Pharisees add to the gospel. They say, they, do, they focus merely on externals. And those externals are things like, well, he's saying, you know, the, the Pharisees were, uh, they would tithe. Uh, the Pharisees would pray. Uh, the Pharisees would fast, but Jesus says, but they do that for what? only one reason, so that they can get the praise of men. He says, but he says, out of the heart is where Christianity deals with first. It deals with our pride, because that's the sin that caused Adam and Eve to fall, right? It was, fr- that was pride that entered, uh, entered, you might say, the garden. Uh, it was pride that... Uh, that the gospel dismantles because it basically it just says I have no place to boast but in what Christ has done for me uh, I can say well you know it's it's important so 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 what he's really doing is he's saying a person who is really committed to the gospel message will be a person who is humbled by the reality that we do nothing for our own salvation because, in other words, they're, they're gripped with the gospel. They're gripped with the reality that Jesus is everything. And that, what that does is that, therefore, that, because then they don't try to justify their sin. They don't, because, if you, you know, we live in a culture that does what? Well, we rename sin. I mean, whoever thought that we would be debating in churches and denominations homosexuality, whether that's a sin or not? It's always been a sin, <laughs> Romans chapter 1. It's always been a sin from the beginning. It's always been a, it's, it's been a sin for all these centuries. And all of a sudden, we've redefined it to say, well, you know, it's really, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a sin. See, what's happening is that we don't go out as a church, we don't go out and say, okay, what is the, let's take the temperature of the, of the society around us and see what's acceptable and what's not. And yet, that's what's happening, right? We do a poll. Well, 60% of Americans say this. And then all of a sudden, we're thinking, well, should the church accommodate that? Or should the church just speak to it? Now, it doesn't mean that a person can't. You know, we're, not, we're talking about, you know, in a church today, I mean, everything is almost, I mean, it's like the church is being told, stay in your lane. Right? What's the church's lane? Well, just do your worship service on Sunday. Don't get out there in public. Don't have an impact. Don't say anything. Use our terms. Uh, and if you don't, I mean, for example, if a parent shows up at a school board meeting who really believes that their child shouldn't be taught transgenderism or that they shouldn't be taught 
uh, by a drag queen in kindergarten. You know what? That you know our our you know even the what is it? The uh, Department of Justice has said that's a domestic terrorist. <laughs> you are considered a domestic terrorist on their report. That's scary, isn't it? Yet in the church, in so many churches, that's they're throwing scripture out, redefining a lot of terminology and saying, well, you know, we really can't be judgmental here. And it's not Christians being judgmental. It's about what does the truth, what, does, what is the truth? And, and that's an important part here. And what, what Paul is saying is that, look, if you, if you redefine, in other words, if your experience and your life is, if you're trying to justify something in your life, you know what you'll end up doing? you'll end up minimizing the scripture and the gospel. And pretty soon you won't have the gospel. Because if there's no sin, why do you need a cross? Why do you need Jesus? Why do you need the forgiveness of sins? Why do you need, why do you need anything? Right? Because that's, where Paul's, that's why Paul is being so specific about this. You know, I thought, well, you know, boy, he's really kind of getting real picky here, isn't he? But in reality, what he's saying is a proud person will throw out the gospel in order to accommodate a lifestyle that's not biblical. And that happens all the time. And so he's saying, okay, this is important, so don't minimize it. And then secondly, he says, not easily angered. Basically, what he's saying is, you know, this person is not a... um, they're not hot-headed. They don't fly off the handle. They're, uh, they, don't, uh, they're not a sh- they don't have a short fuse. You know, they don't, uh, they don't blow up uh, or get easily provoked. They don't, uh, they're not domineering and judgmental in a, in, a, in a sinful way. In other words, sinful anger where, you know, um, what happens to a church if somebody, let's just say in a leadership position or even in a business, if you have an angry boss, what happens? People quit. Uh, there's disunity. There's anger. There's frustration. Um, there's gossip. <laughs> I mean, there's uh, friendships get met, you know split up. I mean, people begin to take sides, um, and all of a sudden things was into fracture because the person who is you know is easily angered is a person who also is looking out for whatever it is that they're whatever their pet peeves, whatever that might be. Um, and notice on each of these, if you, could, if you could take this vice like pride, what's the opposite of pride in scripture? What's the virtue? Humility, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5 there. Uh, or, or take anger. What's the opposite? You know, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, that's and you want, you want, you're kind of like you, he says, you know, be careful. Anger is, sinful anger actually is like killing your brother. You cut them off. You, you cut, you know, you're cutting, uh, you're cutting off that relationship. And the opposite of anger, the virtue is meekness. Uh, blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, meekness is this, it's having the ability to look at someone who disagrees and be able to yet firmly and lovingly still deal with them. You know, speak the truth. It may not, it may not, still may not agree. Uh, but Jesus was meek. But he didn't compromise the truth, right? 
He spoke the truth. He was meek. And then notice that he's not given to wine. In other words, he's not, a, he's not addicted. He's not a drunkard. He's not intoxicated. Um, it's, it's, these, are, these are things that apparently now in that society, uh, there was, that was a big thing. And, and therefore, one of the things that Paul says is that a person should not be a drunkard. Um, and somebody will say, well, you know, should, can, you ever have, can you have alcohol at all? Um, and that's the question I think a lot of times a lot of people have, uh, the church has been kind of on both spectrums, right? Teetotaler, very legalistic. But then what's the other one? We're, today it's more license, isn't it? I've got license to do whatever I want to. As long as I don't get drunk. <laughs> and so that's a big issue, I think, in the church. I mean, you know, obviously. And so, uh, you know, and Paul told Timothy, what? A little wine for your stomach, but he didn't say a lot of wine. <laughs> But it was wine, so you know that's that's we know that. But what's happened is that what, that Christians have fallen into this. I, I think this uh, this idea that that it that I have freedom to do anything. And what Paul does in Romans fourteen, he says that the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but in righteousness, peace, and joy. But then he goes on to say that. You don't want to put a stumbling block in front of your brother. So there probably are more instances where it's good to abstain in order not to cause another brother or sister to stumble in the faith. And I think more so in our society because probably 20% of alcohol use is among 14 to 20 year olds. Probably why you have so many accidents, too, because, you know, intoxicate. I mean, if you're drinking too much, you are going to get intoxicated and you're going to have uh, accidents. Same thing happens uh, with any kind of uh, medication, you know, especially uh, a certain medication that, that, that uh, intoxicates. And so Paul is saying, look, you know, you don't want somebody that you want somebody who basically uses Christian liberty to promote and encourage and build up the body of Christ. He, he's, not, he's not saying, you know, total, um, not, not, he's not saying, Timothy, you could never drink wine for your stomach because it's, even though it's going to help you. <laughs> My dad used Vicks 44, and I said, Dad, there's more alcohol in that than there is in some alcohol. But, uh, but he didn't use it excessively, but he had bronchi bronchial asthma, and he used it, so... Uh, but anyway, in other words, he's saying don't, he's not falling into the legalistic camp. But he's also saying you need to be concerned about your brother and not causing your brother to stumble. So there's, there's that aspect of, and Romans chapter 14 goes through a lot of that Christian liberty and how it should be used. And uh, when I was asked that question, I said, well, I personally am not a drinker, but I, I do believe that... For me to abstain is because I'm more concerned about my brother and my sister. That I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. Or a hindrance to them. Or in other words, and who would be a weaker brother? Would it be like a teenager that would see that? I mean, I have to be, you know, be honest. Well, you know, someone who doesn't know how to handle things that could be dangerous. It would be like uh, giving a, a nine-year-old a... AK-47. I mean, I think you'd be kind of crazy to do that, but <laughs> that, would be, that would be comparable, I guess, or, or something that, in other words, they don't have the, the, 
mechanisms to deal with that kind of a thing. But notice he goes on and says, not one who's violent or contentious. That idea there is he's not a, he's not a pugnacious, a quarrelsome person. He's not looking to divide on every issue. He does, every issue doesn't have to be, I don't have to die on every hill. I don't have to make everything a, a major thing. I don't have to, I don't have to uh, fight over every issue. Um, in other words, it's, he's, he's, not, he's not stirring up strife. He's, he's not a person who's a bully. And that everybody, he just intimidates people and says, you have to, you have to think this way or else, or else I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be open. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to require you to do this in order for me to accept you, uh, is the idea. And, not, and then notice, not greedy for gain. In other words, not an embezzler, not a pilferer, not a person who, I mean, you see this all the time on television. You know, somebody's got two jets flying around and asking for donations, you know. In other words, he's not using the sheep. Because the four things that a, pa- that a pastor, elder does, he's supposed to feed, lead, defend, and know the sheep. Okay, those are the four things. And, and primarily to feed and to lead to defend a sheep, because think about it, the Bible calls us sheep. Now, what, what does that mean? We're kind of defenseless in a way. And, and he doesn't just call us sheep. You know, we have the good shepherd, Jesus, but we also have under shepherds that God's appointed to do what? To lead, to feed, and to defend the sheep. To watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. And those are things that, that uh, the Bible is, is very... Uh, uh, very concerned about it. Like Ezekiel 34, you know, Jesus condemns the shepherds of Israel. And the shepherds of Israel were the prophets, the priests, and the kings, right? And what were they doing? They were feeding themselves, and they weren't looking after the sheep. They were in, for, they were in doing what they were doing, and it was for the, all for the wrong reasons as, uh, as uh, Christians. And you say, well, you know, why is, it, why is the standard so high? It's because... Those are expressions of how the gospel has affected that person's life. And it's important. It's important in terms of integrity. It's important in terms of trustworthiness. It's important in terms of following. Sheep don't follow just anybody, right? I mean, they're going to follow a a shepherd, hopefully, that they trust. Uh, And so those are things that... um, Here is that Paul is putting forth because he's saying these things are things that... Um, I mean, I will even ask uh, when we do interviews for um, ministerial candidates in Presbytery, one of the things I think churches don't do is check references. Have you ever, I mean, you know, when you think about it, you know, you do need to check references. And maybe not all the ones that they give you, but you can always check with the churches that they were, you know, ministering at. I mean, those sometimes are helpful. I'm not saying they're always accurate, but it's important to do. You know, we, we just assume that a person's in ministry is you know, there's no need for asking those type of questions. I think it's important to ask questions about what their views are on certain, these certain things, too. Um, uh, for example, if somebody came and they were in major debt, that might be a problem, right? What the temptation might be, I'm going to have to get a second or third job. <laughs> I mean, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of young men come out of seminary, by the way, which people don't know. Sometimes they come out of seminary with eighty or $90,000 in debt. I mean, three or four years of seminary. That's, uh, and, 
And they go into a church that's paying, you know, they're, they're a small church that can't pay an $80,000 salary or 100000 Guess what happens? That, that, that person is pressured either to stay in the ministry or get out of the ministry. But he's got to feed his family. He's got to take care of his bills. He's got all these other pressures. I've had friends of mine that have dropped out of the ministry because of that. Uh, they just, they couldn't... Uh, they, I think they were given bad advice in seminary. I think the seminary pushed taking out lots of loans. You know, I, I, I worked part-time getting through seminary. It took me five years, but I didn't come out with any debt. And it was worth it, you know, because you know, I, I didn't want, I knew, knowing my dad and knowing that he preached in a lot of small churches in southern West Virginia, knew that churches can't pay the kind of salaries that most people get, you know, if they are, you know, in a, another professional calling. And so those types of questions are things that Paul is dealing with here. But he doesn't stop there. You know what he does? He shifts gears. And in verse 8, he says, but they're hospitable. And then the interesting, it's kind of like he's saying all these other things. But then he says hospitable and it's kind of like, okay, wow. In other words, he's a lover of strangers. That's the word. He loves strangers. In other words, he loves, he loves, to, uh, he loves people. Uh, and, and so he, he's a person that's going to, uh, he's going to open himself, his, you know, his life and his home up to, uh, to others. Um, and then notice this. He says, um, verse 9, he says that he, actually, the, yeah, verse 9. He must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction to sound doctrine and also rebuke those contradicting. But uh, notice he, he's a person who is a lover. He's a hospitable person, verse 8. And he's also a lover of good, a self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And so you kind of like all the things that you don't see in, in verse 6 or verse 7 are the things that he says are positive virtues in verse 8. In other words, hospitable, a lover of good or good, good things. A self-controlled person means they're sober-minded. They're, 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 they don't just, they're not just, they don't flutter here and flutter there. They're, they're sober-minded. And that sober-mindedness means that they have common sense. They, they understand major issues and, and, and smaller issues. And, they, uh, and they're self-controlled. Uh, they're upright, holy, and disciplined. So there's this, this idea of the discipline there is self, self-control, which he'll bring up many, many times. And all of these kind of point back to one thing, and that is, is that your life and my life adorns the gospel. Now, you guys, none of us wears cosmetics. I hope not, Right? But women wear cosmetics, right? The word adorn is the word cosmetic. You adorn the gospel. He uses that phrase in chapter 2 in verse uh, 10. He says, talking about how uh, certain things adorn the doctrine of God. In other words, what's that mean? When, uh, When you put cosmetics on, you're what? Making yourself attractive, more attractive. I mean, so you're already beautiful, but, uh, you know. Uh, women typically don't go out and without cosmetics, right? Cosmeo, that's the word cosmeo. Adorn just means putting on, in other words, adorning the gospel is that you're, what you're doing is your life is adorning the gospel means that it's attracting people. They're looking at your life and saying, wow, why are they like that? Why, why don't they use foul language? Why, why, what is this about Jesus? All this Jesus stuff. <laughs> You know, what, what's it about? Uh, what's, uh, you know, so, so the church is not to be 
mealy-mouthed about their, their testimony, right? Our life speaks more volumes than all the doctrine that we preach. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you look at the home, you look at the marriage, you look at the person's conduct and their character. And he's not saying these are the things that save them. It says those are the things that are the fruit of the gospel actually changing and working in their lives, making them more like Christ. And so, uh, so isn't it amazing that he, that, he, that he is actually putting those things first and yet, those are not always the things that we put first, do we? Well, does the person uh, do this? Now, the doctrine obviously feeds the life. So we can't, that's, that's not, but his point is, is that these people, I mean, think about it. If they're lazy, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. By the way, there were no evil beasts in Crete. Who do you think they was referring to? <laughs> who, are the, who are the lazy beasts there? Or who are the uh, evil beasts that he's talking about? I don't know if he's talking about the teachers or what. Um, uh, is he calling them wolves or what is he calling? I'm not sure. But the point is, is that, that he's concerned about the testimony of the church and its impact on the community and its witness because it's gonna, that life is going to witness whether that church is effective in reaching people for Jesus. And so, uh, so that's why in the church it's, it's so important that, that the church understands why preaching the gospel is so critical to everything that we do. Qualifications of elders begins with their life that flows out of the gospel. And the more you get to know Christ, the more God... So when, when I think of godliness, uh, let's just... I'll ask the question. When, you, when I ask the word godliness, what do you think about? What are some things that come up? What, is, what a godliness, what does that look like, practically? Good person. Good person. Kindness. Kindness, okay. Trustworthy, okay. Giving, Okay. Those are good. I, see, I was, I, was, I was fishing for something different, but, but those are actually the right things. Because <laughs> I'm mean, thinking like, okay, uh, because we th- sometimes we think of godliness as, well, you know, how big is their Bible? You know, uh, they, 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 you know now how many times do you read that Bible every day? And we get into all the, we, we get into our checklist rather than into the reality of what the gospel does in your life. It actually does change you. It does make you kind. It does uh, work in you to uh, build trustworthiness. Uh, and, you know, the, the, those, those, those things that, you know, we take so easily, you know, we, we, we maybe minimize too much. Uh, and so um, these are the things that Paul is saying are important. Uh, and I think the church has to get back to the gospel. And you'll hear me say this. A gospel-centered life is what is produced from preaching the gospel. But what is the gospel? It's the whole word of God, isn't it? <laughs> it's man sinned in the garden. That sin's affected all creation. It's affected you and me. And that, that fall then has then Jesus has what? Jesus came to redeem and to save us from our sin. And he's restoring us. 
And, and like Kenny, I think you mentioned this morning that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We are the image of Christ. In other words, that's our cosmetic, right? We don't have to, we don't have, I didn't have to put anything on. It's either there or it's not. But it's Christ's life, it says it's like, it's metamorphosis. It's that life of Christ coming out in kindness or whatever it is. Whatever those, and you say, well, but I'm not, you know, I'm not always kind. Yeah, but, that, but the point is, it's not, we're not talking about degrees. We're talking about reality. The quality of it is that none of us are perfect. But the truth of it is, is that we're being changed or transformed metamorphosis. We're being changed from that, that ugly caterpillar that everybody hates. <laughs> you don't like them in your house. Uh, but you love them flying around, don't you? Because that, that, what, that, what happens is that ugly caterpillar, that's what it looks like inside. And boy, I, sometimes I feel like that caterpillar more than I do. But then all of a sudden, a butterfly comes up. We're being transformed. That's transformation. That's what the gospel does. The more you focus, the more, the more that you understand that the love of God is so deep and so rich and so full and so complete that there's nothing that you can do to get God to love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing that you do that you don't do that he's not going to, he's going to take away that love for you. That's the gospel. You're free to love God, <laughs> to serve God. There's nobody sitting there and saying, did you do, you didn't pray five times a day today. I've got that. Okay. Uh, you only prayed three. Okay. You're a minus two. That's not God. That's not how God works. God is love. And, uh, and he through his love and the gospel transforms us. I mean, isn't it true that a child that knows that they're loved, what does that do to a child? The child doesn't sense the, the warmth of that love in the home. It has a tremendous effect on them. I remember the first time, and now, now I'm going back, I'm aging myself, but in the 50s and 60s, I was born in 53. So in that time, dad's, because of whatever else, it, they didn't know what it meant to say, I love you. I didn't hear that word until I was in my 20s. It well in my heart when my dad just wrapped his arms around me and gave me a big hug and said, I love you, son. And it wasn't because I did anything. Because I, I, I basically was saying, Dad, I don't want to be a preacher. <laughs> yeah, the last thing I want to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to make something of myself. Well, that lasted for about a year or two years, but anyway. But, but see, that's the thing. But when the love of God got a hold of my heart, I said, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do. I really don't want to be a preacher, but I'm willing to be a preacher, <laughs> even if that's what you're calling me to do. Um, and so Paul says these things are important because it's through this type of an individual that God is going to help the church grow. And it's going to encourage the sheep feed the sheep, guard the sheep. It's going to lead the sheep to, to, to where pasture is and, uh, and is going to uh, benefit the body of Christ. So that's what Paul's concern is, is that the witness of the gospel. So notice just real quickly, one last, last verse is in chapter 2. And this, I think, is the key verse in this chapter, in this book. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared beginning, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, that word keeps coming back, upright and godly lives in this present world age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. But notice that he's, the grace of God has appeared to, and has trained us to renounce ungodliness and, uh, and to wait for the coming of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the gospel. Lord, it's, uh, to me, it's, as I think about all the, the times that we get off on tangents, Lord, keep us focused. Keep us focused on Christ Jesus, our Lord, uh, to give him all the glory and the praise and the honor that's due his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask.